California, um, actually the waves in certain parts and certain beaches in this time of year are called sneaker waves. Now, these waves are very dangerous and uh, they're very deadly and, and three people have already died walking along the shore of certain beaches in Northern California where the rocks are and the, the, the waves are very, very big. Uh, they'll crash on the shore with greater velocity and, and power than you'd expect. Uh, they can knock people down and, and the undertow drag people back out. As I've said, three people have died. Every year people die. They have signs posted on these beaches that literally warn them of these waves and even instruct them to not turn their back on the ocean. You know, you, you, you want to turn your back on the ocean and look back at the landscape, and, and, and they, they advise against that because if a wave crashes and then knocks you down, it can pull you back out with that undertow. Very dangerous, very deceptive. Well, you know, as we look at, and you see the title of the sermon on the seduction of lust, uh, lust is something analogous to that in the sense of it's very, very deceptive and very, very dangerous. It's, it's very dangerous to our relationship with God, of course. It's dangerous to our relationship with our spouse and others, but it's also very dangerous to ourselves. And when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling us to live according to a different, a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees. It's a different righteousness. We're going to find it's much more internal, much more profound. It's a kingdom purity that is remarkable in its perfection. And so I, I want to try to unmask what this adultery is. Try to unmask it for you so you understand what is Jesus really going after here. And then I want to reveal to you the danger associated with, with just continued unrepentant lust and then, and then make some observations at the end uh, to instruct us regarding overcoming, overcoming this issue. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew um, chapter 5. We'll look at 27 to 30. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Uh, Jesus says to them, he says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Uh, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body go into hell, to be thrown into hell. So here Jesus again, like last week, he's, he's kind of... Um, taking issue with the pharisaical teaching. He says, you've heard it said, uh, do not commit adultery, but I say to you. Uh, so Jesus is not annulling the seventh commandment. That idea of adultery, when I say that, strictly speaking, I'm speaking about sexual intercourse with a, with a person uh, that is not your spouse. So he, he's, he's not annulling the seventh commandment. Uh, the prohibition against adultery is not because God is a killjoy. Uh, but God has given the gift of sexual intimacy to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage, and that adultery uh, intrudes itself upon a marital union in a very, very destructive way. I, I don't think I have to argue that point. I don't know how many people you can muster up, even in our oversexed and underpleasured culture. I don't know how many people you can muster up to advance the benefits of adultery. Uh, it, 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 is a, it is a difficult thing if you've ever been with anyone who has 
uh, walk through that difficulty of unfaithfulness, uh, you will know that it's, it's a good word. It's a very good word. Uh, so what Jesus is taking issue with here is not the idea of do not commit adultery. He's taking issue with the interpretation of the Pharisees on the command. In other words, the Pharisees, as I mentioned last week, would look at this with a greater literal approach, that as long as you don't commit the act of adultery, then you are in fact righteous. So it's a restricting of the command to the act alone of adultery, and in that way you can create a very convenient and easy righteousness. Now, I think there's a warning for us here. Those of us who are minimalists, now let me explain that. Uh, By minimalist, I mean that there are many of us who like to restrict God's law down into a very narrow definition, and then by that we can obey it. So if we're doing the external act, we're in great shape. So a woman that wants to cover her head thinks, well, I'm being submissive. A man who takes his family to church, I'm taking them to worship. We give 10% of our money. Therefore, we're, we're straight up with God in our tithing. You know, this, the minimalist is not looking at what's godly or what's moral, but what's lawful. How far can I go before I cross the line? The, the minimalist is really the legalist because he's doing the external, uh, he's exercising external compliance to the law, but there's no love for God. There's a how far can I go before I sin, and that's where I'm going to draw the line. It's not a desire to be holy. It's a desire to meet the demands of the law rather than exercise my love for God. Jesus won't have any of this. And that's why he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus isn't going to have anything to do. Now, this is bold. Again, we hear this, uh, but I say to you, Jesus is the eternal word of God. Anybody else that would say this to you, if I were to say to you, You know, here's God's word, but I say to you, head for the door. It's the eternal word of God that can unfold, if you will, the true meaning of God. And what he's saying is this. He's going from the external compliance, avoiding adultery, to the internal desire to be pure. Huge difference there. Now, when I speak about this heart adultery, uh, let me tell you what I'm not intending to say first. I don't think heart adultery, this lustful, is, is being sexually attracted to someone. To feel a sexual attraction to someone, that I don't believe is what he's speaking about here. Uh, the desire for sexual intimacy, that's a God-given gift. I don't think that's what's being spoken of here. I think to even see an attractive person and to note that fact isn't necessarily adultery, spiritual adultery. I think what he's driving at here. It is the desire, in fact, in the grammar it's clear, the desire, lust, the word for lust is just desire. It's a a neutral word. It's driven by the object of what's being desired. And if there is a desire for a woman or for a man with the intent to possess, that's when it moves into this heart adultery. You know what I mean. I mean, you have a desire and you begin to cultivate the desire You begin to fascinate on the desire uh, for sexual gratification or considering the pleasure that would come from a union with this person. That's what he's speaking about here. That idea of look. And and in in Greek, the look is a prolonged look. 
It's a look where you're really looking, but then you keep looking, and you're actually fashioning material for your mind to then go back with and, and, and enjoy and gratify yourselves over. Jesus obviously knows that the act of adultery and the attitude or this, or this lustful looking, he knows there's a difference. He's just saying they're not that far apart. In fact, all public acts of shame are always preceded by private thoughts of shame. They're always together. If you're willing to go to bed with a woman in your mind, you'll follow with your body if you're given the chance. And that's what he's saying. Now, this idea of being kind of unmasking adultery from being this pure, I haven't committed it, and Jesus deepens it. I mean, I think we see this in profound measure in our culture right now. Uh, this is clearly an issue for men. Uh, the, the stats, I, I'm always, uh, when you talk about a subject like this, the stats are so overwhelming that I actually have to try to defer some of them in the sense of they're, they're just, you get lost in the numbers. But let me just remind you, uh, particularly with pornography, the industry is massive. It's casting its shadow. It's no longer this victimless crime. It's really a societal issue we have here. I mean, it's a massive industry. 20% of all sites on the Internet are pornographic. 11,000 adult videos are made every year, every year. I mean, it's a profoundly effective ministry. Men, 66% of men between the ages of 18 and 34 visit pornographic sites every month. It's profound. Now, now here, this is, it's, it's bleeding into the business area. 70% of all pornographic usage or uh, pornography um, through the Internet is used between, 70% is used between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. So now companies are, 65% of all companies have pornographic searching software because they're losing millions and millions of dollars. But, but it's not just among men. Of course, it's among children as well. A survey done in London showed that 90% of children between 9 and 15 had either accidentally or intentionally visited pornographic sites. It's a profound issue. I, I don't think men or women, for that matter, are more lustful now than they ever were. I think it's all the same. But I do believe that, that the technology has increased in exponential fashion this, this ability to inflame the heart. Uh, this, by the way, is not just with men. It's not just with young boys. It's with women. Going to a, a recent survey among today's Christian women, one in six women visit pornographic sites or have visited them. Now, with women, it, it's clearly and generally different. Uh, for men, it's much more on the erotic level. Women, it's much more on the relational level. And, and so women will often... Um, lust after another person's marriage or another person's life or perhaps another person's home or perhaps another woman's body. You know, when women will walk in, uh, it, it is obvious, at least to me, that oftentimes women will review other women, like a barcode scanner, checking the shoes to the outfit to the hair. It's up and down. It's true. And, and just not in an erotic way, but just in a lustful way. Maybe it's their figure you want, or their clothing, 
or the way they're able to put themselves together, or their hair. Either way, when Jesus unpacks or unmasks this issue for us, it is a serious dilemma for us, both as a society, but particularly as Christians. Now, how do you fare when Jesus kind of draws us down into the deeper intention of God for this issue? How how do you fare? I mean, some of us, I think, come in fairly confident. Well, I haven't committed the act. I'm not in an inappropriate relationship with a woman. You look at your life and you, you look at the purity that you've tried to muster up and you feel as if I'm pretty good before God. But then you come to a text like this and you realize, whoa, it's much deeper than I thought. I, I just want to warn the confident here, don't stumble over the gospel, substituting your obedience at purity for Christ's obedience at purity. Don't stumble over that. For the casual here, I mean, some of us are, are so in, we're counting on grace so much, and, and we enjoy grace. We fall into that dilemma of what we call antinomianism. Antinomianism, it, two Greek words, antinomos, against the law. In other words, I don't need the law anymore. I've got forgiveness. I'm okay with sin because I'm forgiven. Paul said, shall we sin that grace may abound? And he said, may it never be. Some of us are actually too soft. We, we, we ignore these words of Jesus that call for a radical purity, a righteousness above the righteousness that we can muster. And then there are some of you right here that are deeply convicted and you're troubled. You're weighted down. You, you hear me read this. You listen to me explain this. And you think, I'm guilty. I mean, I am totally in a corner. And you know what I'd say to you? Exactly. You're the only one that gets the point. The point is that Jesus is explaining the law in such a way that all of us are, we're all shut up in guilt. This is the point of why in 5.17, Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So in other words, those who are bound in guilt right now over their heart adulteries, the only one we have, the whole intention of the law is to drive us into a corner that we may turn to the one who lived righteously and who has fulfilled the law, and who has walked out these verses with perfection for us. And so we're called to faith in Christ. That's the hope of the Christian gospel, is that we're now freed from this guilt because of one who has walked with absolute perfection. So this is the unmasking of adultery. It's not the act. It is the attitude that precedes to and leads up to the act that Jesus is going after. Now, let me, let me try to reveal to you the danger here because I, I think many of us think, you know what, Tom? It's just not that big a deal. It's only a look. It's only a little frame. She's getting paid for it. I'm enjoying it. It's no big deal. It's just creation. I'm just enjoying a little bit of this. I, I think we tend to underestimate the threat that lust in our culture provides for us. In fact, Jesus kind of heightens it, I think, if you would not agree with me. Here is his response to us. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. I mean, clearly in both examples, he is showing us this absolute seriousness with regard to the nature of lust and its damning effects on our soul. He goes with the right eye and the right hand because those were the most important, you know, in a right dominant culture, those are the most important members of our body. 
And he's saying that even though they are most important, if they are going to cause you to sin, if they're going to lead you to stumble, that's the word, scandalon, this idea of, of a bait and a trap. You set the trap, put the bait in there, the stick, you have the string, when the animal goes in, boom, you pull it and he's caught. If, if the right eye or the right hand leads you to sin, if there's something in you that leads you to sin, cut it off. Otherwise, it's better to lose one part of your body than have your whole body thrown into hell. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't asking us to practice self-mutilation. I mean, that, that should be clear. If I tear out my right eye, I can lust just fine with my left one. It's not the mutilation. It's showing the seriousness of the issue that radical, it, it, it demands a radical response to the temptation to sin is what he's driving after here. A, a radical, I mean, desperate times require desperate measures is what he's driving at here. The, the halfway measures at dealing with this are inadequate. And that's why we see this warning that lust unchallenged leads to enslavement, and enslavement leads to separation from God forever. Look, Jesus brings up the hell issue. He says you'll be thrown into hell. Now, I know when I say that to you, you think a little lust and hell, it's kind of like frost, it's like wet paint. You know, when you see that sign that says wet paint, you don't believe it. You've got to touch it. I do it all the time, and I get paint on my hand every time I do it. You don't believe it. You just can't believe it. It says it. You understand it. It's in English. I got it. It's wet paint. And you just got to touch it. And, and, because you just don't believe it's still wet. And when you come across something like this, you think, eh, it wouldn't do it. That seems so over the top. It seems so over the top. A little lust, a little look, a little thought, a little imagination, and I'm going to be thrown into hell. Let me tease out for you, just for a few minutes, some of the implications of, I think, where lust drags us down. I've unmasked it for you. I'm trying to now reveal to you the danger. In fact, in fact as I was going through this, it reminded me of when I took uh, Rachel to one of these kind of, uh, we went on some field trip when she was in second or third grade and went to a place that had flowers and stuff, and we came across the Venus flytrap. It's really a cool little plant, actually. And it's cool in the sense what it does is that it has a sweetness to it that the insect lands on and, and begins to enjoy the sweetness. And then, and then this plant has these little fingers with sticky kind of hair-like follicles on the end of it, and it touches the wings or the body of the insect. And then the insect, of course, is starting to struggle to get out of this trap um, and then gets himself more tangled up. And, of course, then the, the leaves begin to close. Then with two hours, you have nothing but a shell left. But here's the irony, that when the insect is trapped and, and he knows he's going down, he's still taking the nectar. He's still consuming when he's being consumed. Th that this is what lust does to us, that while we're consuming the sweetness of lust, it's consuming us. It's consuming us at, at various ways. I mean, let me say, it, it distorts the image of God in you. I, I mean, for women, you've been made as a co-heir, a co-partaker of God's divine nature. And yet to participate in that, you're being made into an object. You're, you're being used. It's being possessed for the gratification of another. 
I, I, I mean, you lose that status. It distorts how you've been made. And for men, you were created to be protectors and stewards of creation. You, no one gave you the right to be consumers of it. You, you move from, we move from this selfless servant leader to these self-centered lechers. So, so it, it twists in greater fashion the image of God. We don't walk out our dignity being made as God. But not just that, it weakens our spiritual appetites. One author said that when you're in the grip of lust, God seems very unreal to us. And you know that's true. That when you're, when you're walking in lustful behavior, there's guilt and there's shame. There's looking over your shoulder. Who's going to find out if anybody knows about this? And it causes our prayer life to begin <clears throat> to falter. The promises of God seem so far away. And, and your, your capacity for spiritual truth is diluted, deeply diluted. Not just that, but, but lustfulness leads us to idolatry. So adultery leads to idolatry. The intimacy, the gift of intimacy that God has given to the husband and wife to be a place of great joy and thankfulness to him because he's created this and he's made us to enjoy it, that that becomes the object rather than God being the object of worship. And so all of a sudden our intimacy begins to be an end in itself. And when it's an end in itself, we're lifting it up to the level of God. And instead of being thankful to God, the enjoyment we have with our spouse, we actually ignore God and just self-gratify. And, and, and then last, I would say lust also destroys us, and it destroys our relationships in particular. And this is a book that I came across from a Wheaton professor called Wired for Intimacy. And in this book, he is detailing out how neuro, certain neurochemicals, you have more nerve cells in your head than there are stars in the universe. And, and these neurochemicals are excited and inflamed through sexual arousal. And so the more you pursue uh, pornography, you're creating certain pathways in your brain that engenders a greater need of that same stimulation to get the same sense of arousal. And so you can't just say anymore, well, I was just taking a look. You weren't taking a look. Actually, neurochemicals were going off in your mind, creating pathways that are going to be demanding more later. So it does actually affect us. But not only that, it, it, not just neurologically, but also relationally. You know, it's always, it, it, it would break the heart of anyone, particularly for a woman to come upon, find her husband's been in pornography. There's, there's a sense of distrust. In fact, I, I read what I felt was a very poignant response to that. And uh, let me read it to you. This was from a woman uh, that discovered this. Here's what she writes. It feels like I'm riding on the bow of a smooth, sleek sailboat in a stiff wind cutting through the waves. The sun is shining bright. The sky is brilliant blue. Water sparkles in the sunlight. Then without warning, I'm plunged headfirst over the side into the murky deep. I'm disoriented as I try to figure out which way is up. My lungs start to burn, and I'm desperate for air. I struggle to swim to the surface. The pain of the reality of your husband pursuing sexual pleasure while watching frame by frame images of other women feels like drowning. The betrayal, the trust broken, the disregard, the deceit, and the one that's shattered are as waters rushing into your lungs making breathing impossible. That's the sense of the betrayal and the brokenness. 
This is a serious issue for us. I, you know, the world plays with sin. We rationalize it. We ignore it. We justify it. The Christian doesn't play with sin. Sin is not manageable for us. John Owen said that you're either killing sin or it's killing you. I mean, the nature of, of lust in particular is this incremental stair step down into just lostness and darkness. So, so if you're sitting here thinking, well, I've kind of got a handle on it, I, I've, I've got it under control, please listen to me. Sin is not to be trifled with. How many of you have been trifling with this? I mean, how many of you have kind of bought into the line of thinking it's not that big a deal? A little bit of lust, a little bit of porn, a little bit, and women too. A little bit of desiring this. And, 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 and how many of you have been kind of duped into thinking this way? You know, it was just eight years ago, perhaps you heard the story, a guy named Aaron Ralston was hiking in the John Blue Canyon in Utah. And he was walking in these canyons in these small crevices, only three feet wide, kind of moving through with his hands and, and walking, but, you know, steadying himself. And when he was walking, an 800-pound boulder pressed against his arm, and he was pinned. No one was around him. Uh, he had water, he had food, and he lasted there for four days until he ran out of water, calling, trying to un, unlodge his arm. He lasted another two days, and he finally realized he'd have to cut off his arm. So he only had a pocket knife, and, and he cut off his arm. But it makes sense, doesn't it? I, I mean, you, you lose your whole body, or you lose an arm. What would you choose? You'd choose the arm every time. You don't think you would, but I'll tell you, life kicks in, and you want to live, and you really want to live. And so it makes total sense to do that. And he did. He tourniqueted his arm, and he walked out, got medical help, and he's alive today. He, it made sense to him. Lose an arm, save the body. Does it make sense to us? Lose an eye, lose a hand, save the body. So, so I, I wanted to unmask adultery. I wanted to reveal to you the serious danger. But, but now I want to give you just some ideas of overcoming this lust. And uh, I think we'll post these on the web, but if you want to write them down, I'm just going to go through the alphabet. I, I could have a load of them. I'm just going to do a number of them, uh, just kind of acrostically, A, B, C, D, just from my own memory. It helps me to keep in mind what I'm trying to say. So, so to overcome lust, I would say first, it would be accepting that the, that, the, that the heart is the source of the issue. That you would agree with me to accept the fact that the problem is here, not out there. So, so the scantily clad women, the demons, all that sort of stuff that we kind of say that's the problem, they may be part of the problem. The real issue is in your heart. Jesus said it. It's adultery with her. In your heart, you've already committed adultery. This is the problem, uh, that, that, that the heart is the seat of emotions. It's the seat of your will. It's what motivates you. It's where your desires are baked and formed and your actions flow out of it. This is what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a great uh, preacher in London at Westminster Chapel in the mid-20th century, and he wrote these words. He says, sin is not merely a matter of actions and of deeds. It's something within the heart that leads to the action. 
In other words, the teaching here is that the characteristic teaching of the Bible everywhere on this subject is that we must concentrate not so much upon sins as sin. Sins are nothing but the symptoms of a disease called sin. And it's not the symptoms that matter, but the disease. For it is the disease that kills and not the symptoms. So the heart is the issue. Jesus said it, he said in Matthew chapter 7, or sorry, Mark chapter 7, he says, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of a man's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. It's what the, this is the blindness of Islam. Islam is going to cover up a woman and think that we're now not going to lust. It doesn't work that way. The church fathers in the 3rd and 4th centuries, when they began to see society going very liberal and, and culturally very sinful, they went out into the deserts to be pure. They took the problem with them. It's in the heart. It's in the desires of the heart. And this is why when you see churches and they're, they're trying to put all these rules on certain behaviors to control sin, I'm not opposed to certain rules, but they don't deal with the issue. The issue is the heart. And so accepting that leads to believing in the gospel. B, believing in the gospel. See, what the Christian faith teaches is that when a person comes to faith in Christ, the heart of stone, the heart that is self-centered, the heart that is idolatrous is removed and a new heart is put in, a heart of flesh, a heart that responds to the call of God. And, And this heart now begins to beat with a growing desire for God to overcome lust and sin. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle with sin because the, although the dominion of sin has been broken, the presence of sin remains, and so we have a battle. We clearly have a battle. But Paul speaks about the battle in this way. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Sin shall not be your master. You're not under the law, but you're under grace. So, in other words, for the Christian, with a new heart, we're in the game now. We're in the fight now. But we can fight. We're not dominated anymore by it. In fact, John Owen, another great English theologian of the 17th century, said this. He said that sin may fight, tempt, and perplex us. It may surprise us into actual sin. Yet it has no dominion over us. We are in a state of grace and acceptance with God. It can't control us anymore. And that is what believing on the gospel can do. For the person that doesn't believe in the gospel, you're in this battle on your own. And may God have mercy on you. Because it's a battle you won't win. But the gospel gives us the ability. But see, confess your sins within a community of faith. You know, it is essential for us to overcome lust, that we don't just accept the source of it, we don't just believe in the gospel, but we exercise and practice the confession of sin one to the other. What lust wants to do is get us isolated, alone, and darkened. You know, when you go into these adult shops, they don't have capacity seating for 5,000 people. Nobody wants to know who's there. You don't want anybody to know you're there. It's very small. It's very consigned. It's very dark. But you confess and you bring it to the light. Confession has the ability to snap the hold that it has on you. It's embarrassing. It rips you at the core. But it begins to expose to the community of faith who, by the way, are as sinful as you and can bring help and grace and forgiveness. 
D, though, D, we do want to deny these passions. There is a role to cut off, to tear out. That word, that idea is to mortify. Mortify is an old word we don't use anymore. Mortician was a word that you would use for the man or the woman who comes and takes a dead body away and prepares it for a funeral. A mortician to mortify is to put to death. Paul says, put sin to death in Colossians 3, 5. What I mean by to mortify sin, to mortify passion, is this. If you are weak in a certain area, and, and, and it's kind of a flame spot for you, don't drag wood to it. Don't bring gasoline to it. To deny is to withhold yourself from inflaming that weak area that you already have. Now, for men, usually that involves the eyes. And that's why Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes, not to look lustfully at a woman. You know, and so... For me personally, I try to be guarded with what I see. Why? Because the images that come into my mind create a cesspool for my imagination to bake all kinds of things out. And then that becomes great fodder for me to struggle with a week later. So we want to be, this doesn't save us. But we have to know ourselves. And where are the weak spots? I wouldn't say you can't see this movie. I would say be careful of the movies you see, but, but for you it might be different for me. It's, that's why I don't like these standardized rules. Now, I would say this. Women, when you dress, there is a difference between dressing attractively and provocatively. It, the key for dress and women, and I wouldn't say what that means, but, but I think you know, but because you, you don't want to become pornography, I think is the issue. You don't want to become that. That doesn't mean that you have to dress with, you know, when we, goes, when we used to go into the prison, Carol would have to wear a dress about a, a millimeter uh, north of her ankle, and uh, it was almost a burqa. It really was. It was, all, it was all covering up. Guess what? That didn't stop those men. Now, saying that, there is wisdom to be gained by being modest and not becoming pornography. But, but I don't want to say, here's what it looks like. I, I think it can be different. Um, so, so deny these things. Deny yourself of these things. Uh, but then E is really exalting Christ. And here's where I want to, this is really, I think, the heartbeat of overcoming lust is determining to draw a greater joy out of Christ than out of the promises of lust. Listen, one author said it this way, She said, the world is littered with the debris of what erotic love has promised but been unable to provide. Uh, Lust makes promises, great promises to us, of pleasure. But there is a pleasure in Christ that I think is so unsurpassable. I mean, think about it for a minute. Can God not give you a greater pleasure than you can draw from any sort of sexual pleasure? I mean, isn't it? Isn't it so obvious to think that the one who created it is of greater pleasure than the act itself? And yet we succumb all the time to pursue and to satisfy ourselves on the promises of lust, and they never meet what they said. And yet in Christ, as Luke read in uh, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word for see there isn't the visual sight. It's the experience of God. Can you imagine the day that you die and you stand before God and you see all of his glory? Can you not imagine 
that you will be pleased beyond measure. I mean, can you not imagine seeing the one that has died for you and, and seeing his wounds, sensing and enjoying his profound love for you? Can you not believe with me that that will be of greater pleasure than the smut that we seek to please ourselves on now? John Piper wrote this about this exchange of pleasure. He says, the fire of lust's pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, which I've just read, we will fail. We must fight it with a massive promise of a superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. It has to be. If not, it's going to be a tough battle. You've got a lot of days ahead. Okay, F is figure the cost. Consider the cost of Christ's cross to die for our sins. So when the, when the temptation comes into your mind about entertaining this lust, bring another thought in your mind. Bring the thought of the nails, or bring a thought of the thorns, or bring a thought of the scourging, or bring a thought of the suffering that he endured so that we could be redeemed. You know, try to match thought against thought. Call upon the name of Jesus that you might be delivered from the immediacy of the temptation. I mean, thinking on his wounds will be very effective at staving off lust. And then last, G, would be grasping a proper proportion. It's really hard the further you get down the alphabet to keep making it work. But grasping the proportion, grasping a proper proportion, what I mean by this is this, that right now you may be feeling heavy laden, burdened, and uh, feeling kind of overwhelmed with your sin. Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe you're in it knee deep and you don't think you can get out of it. You're a Christian. You've confessed Christ. You've borne fruit. You practice faith and repentance, but you're stuck. Uh, don't define yourself by the sin. You're more than this sin. Don't look at yourself and exchange the identity that Christ has given you in him for, I'm just a sinner. Find the balance. Yes, we sin, but we have been redeemed. Reconsider that God has a passion for you. God is going to be good to you. God has good for you. Do not define yourself by past sin. Define yourself in Christ. You are a man. You're a woman. In Christ, I've been redeemed. I've been delivered. Yes, I still battle sin. Yes, I still fail with sin. And that's why I practice faith and repentance. I repent of my sin. I re-exercise my faith in believing that Christ is greater than the promise that the sin offers me. So don't lose proportion. Don't fall into hopelessness and despair. But remind yourself, what is my identity? I am a sinner, but I am a saint. Either path, you can go off rail in either direction. You can play the sinner card and fall into moroseness and fall into, I'm a wicked person and have very joy in life. Or you can go into the saint card and only talk about your sonship and never consider the reality that we are still in a battle in this life while in flesh and blood. Let's find that path down the middle. Let's keep proper proportion here. Don't lose your identity on the sin. So, simply this. Try to unmask adultery as a spiritual, as a heart adultery. I've tried to reveal to you the danger associated with not dealing with this as severely as tearing out an eye or 
cutting off a hand. And then I've tried to give you some things, A through G, regarding overcome, overcoming loss. So let's together as a church, since we're all in this world together, God's appointed this to be the place and time in which we live, and I'm thankful for that. Let us pray right now. I will begin, and I think uh, Jack's going to close, or a brother's going to close. Uh, the brother who closes knows who the brother is who's going to close. I just don't know right now. But one of these dear brothers will close us in prayer. We won't be here all day. And, but I'll begin, and, and let's let this time be a time of, of corporate consideration. Now, we're before God. Uh, his people are gathered together. Christ the head is here with us. So we're speaking to him about these things. So, so let us, uh, it's, it's a time of confession, of thanksgiving, of, of, of seeking him for grace in this. And let me begin. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy in your word. You've been very clear to us today. May we have grace to walk in the degree of understanding that we have. 